So welcome and for the next 55 minutes or so what we're going to be doing is looking at the topic of hiring and recruiting retaining sales winners and in doing that I'm just going to talk a little bit about what I'm going to cover off for the next 55 minutes or so. Um, I'll share the agenda with you in a moment as, as we how we go through those four areas. Before I do that, I just want to let you know that throughout the, 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 the class webinar, I'm going to be sharing some assets with you, tools, templates, that kind of thing, particularly around recruiting and hiring. Anything I'm using, I'm going to share with you. And so you'll need to keep your chat open for that, because what I'll do is as I go through a, a template or a tool and I share, I'm just going to post a link in the chat for you. If there's any questions that you have come up throughout it, I'd probably best put those into the Q&A function. You can put them in chat and if I see them, I'll certainly answer them, uh, but the chat can disappear very, very quickly. So I'm going to suggest if you put them into the Q&A, they'll stay there. And unlike the last time, I have enabled Q&A, so it should stay in there. And at the end, then I'll deal with those questions. So if I run over the time in dealing with Q&A, that's fine. Even if you can't stay, they'll be captured in the recording and that'll be made available. The only thing that won't be made available, the only thing that won't be made available uh, is those tools that I'm going to share with you because you're here live. If you're watching this and it's not live, then there's no comp, no chat field, so you can't get those uh, as easy. Um, but first, before I share the agenda, I wanted to share the, the purpose of where this came from, and it stemmed to the conversation I had with Tom Castley, and Tom is going to appear later on, because I did a, a podcast with Tom on hiring and recruiting, and he shared with me their hiring process, and I've got that for you this afternoon. Uh, I've also got a little clip from Tom where he shares his two favorite questions. I've got that, and I've got a lot more on questions and process and that kind of stuff. But but really, it came from the, the, the fact that it's this time of year, every year, yes, there's a demand for people and there's a, a friend's frenetic activity in trying to hire people, that people move from one job to the next. However, it's different. It's getting tougher. And, and I guess the penny dropped for me was when I saw that the amount of money that's been invested by VCs and startups, and a lot of this is stemming from the Fed and the European Central Bank literally just printing money and distributing that through pension funds and investors making its way to VCs, which are pumping it into startups. In 2021, there was a hundred million dollars invested, billions, not million, um, invested in startups, in 8,000 startups. That's just in EMEA. That's not worldwide. Uh, companies raising between 2 million and 50 million each. And the interesting thing was, not alone did that set all records, it is double last, the, the previous years, 2020, which at the time broke all records. And it's 10 times the investment six years ago. That's 8,000 companies. And these are just the startups, not the, not the traditional larger organizations that are, are absolutely in the market, but just the startups with lots of cash looking to grow, hire, uh, compete and they're all fishing in the same pond for that talent so and, and just as we when we talk about sales we talk about that your best customer somebody else's best prospect your best rep is now some recruiters number one target so part of that if I look at the agenda for this um, is that retention is is job number one how do we make sure that we hold on to key staff key talent but even and assume you do a great job in that if you're in growth mode you've also got to recruit and now you're competing with all of these other companies that are throwing money at SDORs, BDORs, AE and then of course we don't want to get too caught up in that because it is a buyer's market if you like and then we hire and we hire the wrong person and anybody who's ever done that and if you've been a leader for more than a year you've done that is that's a nightmare because it takes up so much of your time so how do we make sure we put a process in place to 
weed out those who often appear and will interview like they're James Bond, but end up behaving like Johnny English when they get their feet under the table. And so that's part of the problem. And the other thing is then once we've got people on board, how do we get them up to full productivity, time to revenue as quickly as possible? How do we do that consistently? And also within that, how do we make sure that if somebody does get through that really is not an A player, how do we capture that early and weed out any kind of early mistakes? So that's in essence what we're going to do. We're going to spend most of the time, uh, not that we have a lot of it, but we're going to do that really around the recruiting, hiring and onboarding. But I do want to, before we um, get into those areas, just touch on the retaining talent bit because i think that gets overlooked when our focus is diverted to bringing on board people and hiring and recruiting very often we could take our eye off the ball and get blindsided and so i want to talk about that just briefly um as a i guess a, as an issue very often we we think reps are all out to you know make money and, and they are to some extent clearly but money is temporary and it's easy to outbid somebody, you know, this idea of salaries and snacks, well, that can only take you so far. And very often in organizations, you know, the benefits are developed by committees and uh, they, they, their goal is to make them as egalitarian as, purpose, as, as possible. Um, and however, however, and I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, this whole notion of egalitarianism, diversity, um, equality and inclusion goes out the window when it comes to retaining key talent because we don't care about their background, their ethnicity, their gender, anything else. You care when it's, you got an A player about what they produce. In some strange way, when we talk about inclusion, it's actually the opposite as a case. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit. I think it's really, really important. And I want to share with you uh, something that happened to me a few years ago, which demonstrates this. Anyway, at a company level, all those policies are absolutely spot on. But when it comes to retaining A players, it's, it's not that it's not helpful. It's actually sometimes the opposite is what we want. Certainly when it comes to inclusion, we want exclusivity. Or at least that's what an A player does. Um, I was in an organization a few years ago and I was, I had itchy feet and I was looking around and I was at a, a conference and the CEO was also, the company I was working for was at this conference and he came over to me and tapped me on the shoulder and he said to me, Paul, he said, um, I ha he had some swanky suite that he was staying in. He said, I'm having an after conference party reception what you want to call it just to get together in my room in, in my suite i'd like you to come I said, okay didn't need to be asked twice and i went to this at the appointed time in the room and when i got there there weren't that many people it was like a select few people there was the executive team one other person and the way he spoke to me at that was I won't go into the details of the conversation, it doesn't matter. And it wasn't even the conversation, it was the fact that I got invited to this group made me feel really, really special. No amount of salary could compensate for that. And so I think when we talk, this is the message I want to leave you with. When it comes to retaining A players, can't retain them with money, you'll always get outbid. They care less about their job because they can find a job. An A player can walk into any job they like. And when we talk about recruitment, there's something else. People who post jobs, A players are not looking for jobs. They're too busy making money. And so what does appeal to them? Well, you've got to get, go deep into their sense of who they are as an individual, identity, ego, and play to that. And I, I think that if we kind of think of it as a, what we want to do is, um, if you're having an offsite meeting, an executive team offsite meeting, bring along an A player or two, ask them to present, ask them to be part of it, tell them that you value their opinion. 
it's almost what you want to do is is make them thirsty give them a sense of what's available to them keep them hungry or maybe you're having a barbecue with some of the executive team it could be offsite it could be the back of your house invite one or two of them along or maybe you want to get together with some of your work colleagues executive team for a watch a game invite one or two of them along let them know that they're special think about the corollary of this i had this but this is my story when i worked in an organization and i was a pre-sales guy at the time and I, I wanted to make that transition into sales i went from a very technical background into pre-sales because i wanted to get this this is a path to get to sales and some of the guys in the company had been to the states on a sales training i do not remember if it's more than 20 years ago what the sales training was but when they came back they were very um enthusiastic about it they talked this is the best training they'd ever been on blah 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 so i went to my boss andy and i said andy um really love to go on that sales training and andy's words to me were after he kind of just <laughs> laughed a little bit he says that's just for the big boys yeah, no amount of money can compensate for that. I didn't say anything to him directly. I just fumed. I went home. And by the time I got home, I was opening all the papers. Within a month, I was in a new job. That's the corollary. So when you, so you can, you can do, give people all the salary they want in the world, all the snacks, all the benefits, but you undercut the right sense of identity that are gone. And, and the, what we're talking about here in terms of retainment is the opposite of making them feel special. So my question for you, and clearly it's a rhetorical question in this forum, is what are you doing to identify your A players and make them feel special? Make them feel like they're part of the A team. That's a takeaway. So that's the first one, just to bear that in mind. So what I want to do now is talk about Recruitment. Let's move on to the next stage because I want to spend most of my time today with you on recruitment and, and hiring and, and onboarding. And I want to share with you uh, this, 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 uh, this slide here. Um, this is a Ferrari. Uh, this is not my Ferrari, by the way, so don't, uh, don't, don't <laughs> I wish. And I'll tell you why it's not my Ferrari. I can't buy a Ferrari. You know, I, 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 uh, where is it here? I want to share this with you. Is uh, this is a website? This was actually it was actually Tom talking to Tom Cosley, who appeared later on, was telling me that the average punt you just can't walk into a dealership and buy a Ferrari. Now think about that for a second. You're the buyer. You go in. You have the money. They won't sell it to you. You can go have a look at this website. I'm not going to kind of go through it now, but if you just put in buying a Ferrari, how do you buy a Ferrari, etc um it's <laughs> the the criteria that they put in place is just at a, at a, almost at a ridiculous level now please don't take this literally i don't mean it literally but what i want to do is give you a sense that with when we're talking to about a players i want you to think change our paradigm a little bit and think about them in terms of really i guess the traditional mode has always been the hiring party was like a buyer and the potential employee had to sell themselves. And that's true of B and C players, there's no question about it. The hiring company would you know, put up a job description, a job spec and invite people to apply and then put them through a process. That's not how it works with A players. They're not looking for a job. Think of them like, the, like they're selling a Ferrari. They have criteria, a very selective criteria. A couple of things you know about A players, if, you've, if you're lucky enough to have them working for you, is that they've got a really fine tune to self, a sense of self. Um, they're also very confident. So they know their value and they're not just going to give that to anybody. And so 
in, in changing our paradigm a little bit, I want you to think more of how do you sell yourself to these individuals as, an, as, as a hiring manager, but also as an organization. Now on the back end, absolutely, there, there has to be a qualification process on your behalf, for sure. But when you just change your paradigm and think then as recruitment, almost like prospecting, watching a, a video by Mark Robert, Robert, he was the uh, CSO in, in HubSpot uh, early on, sold out for 270 million now as a VC. And he talked about this and he talked about the difference in how you direct yourself towards A players and how you um, attract them into the organization. And people buy into a story. They don't buy into a salary. And that's something else to, to think about as part of your recruitment process. For those of you who've seen the movie or read um, Steve Jobs' autobiography, there's a section in it where he was trying to recruit the CMO from Pepsi, John Scully, into Apple. And he told him a story, shortest story, one of the shortest stories ever written. And the story was this. He said to John Scully, do you want to spend the rest of your life making sugared water? Or do you want to join me and build a future? And just that, that, that sense of here's where you are, here's where you could be as a story. All organizations have a story. Make sure when, when, you're, when you're recruiting people that the story you're presenting to them is a story that they want to get behind, that they want to be part of. And so in a recruitment sense, again, think of it more as what story do potential A players want to be part of? Because the salary isn't, isn't, yes, they have to be paid competitively. That's not an issue. Let's stop talking about salary because they can get the same and better salary elsewhere. Why join you? They're joining a story. So that, that's the first thing I want to just kind of put out there in terms of recruitment. Um, I want to talk a little bit then about some of the uh, processes, I guess, that are behind that. And uh, so I, I, let me just put them up here. I, I lo I'm looking at this and I realized I've uh, put the wrong one in here, but never mind. I'm going to share this with you. So this is a, um, okay, I thought I put a slide in. I don't have it, so I'm just going to talk to it. So the first stage in this, in terms of, first of all, define the story. Second, I want you to talk about, and, and I'm going to, this is a tool that I'm going to share with you, is as you're recruiting, defining your, what we call the primary function um, indices. Essentially what they are is, as you define the functions for the job, for example, uh, is it a long sales cycle? Is it a short sales cycle? What sort of environment are they going to be working in? I had somebody recently tell me a story about one of the, I say best hires, hire they made, and this was somebody everybody loved. Customers loved them, staff loved them. He lasted three months in the job because they had hired him from an environment where he was working in this open plan office with everybody else, big foosball table in the corner of the office, a lot of fun, a lot of crack, a lot of social interaction. Hired him into a job where it was a field sales job, sent him out on a Monday, come back on Friday. And it was a kind of a lone ranger type environment. And he just was like a fish out of water. So that's what I mean by environment. Deal size. Um, I've seen this one. Uh, what type of size deal are people used to closing versus what are you asking them to? And this can go to people's sense of identity. Here's, here's a true to life example. Company I worked with a few years ago, they were a big software company, a lot of on-premise, typically selling to C CIOs, multi-million dollar deals. Then the company changed their strategy, I guess, their, their, their business model. And they went from on-premise to subscription-based, cloud-based software, which is a very different deal size. And not alone was it a different deal size, 
who they were calling on was different. They weren't calling on the CIO with a multi-billion dollar or million dollar budget. They were calling on the heads of functions, head of sales, head of finance, logistics, and so on, depending on the module software. And I remember the, the, where I came into it was the director in the company said, I want to retrain these people because they're struggling. Problem was, we couldn't retrain some of them. They just didn't have their, their, their sense of what selling was, what they were used to, what they were comfortable with, the, they were working in was they, they struggled, really struggled to make the transition to smaller deal sizes, more frequent meetings, dealing with different heads of functions. So it can be really, really important that we clearly identify what the primary function indicators are that are going to make this not just make this person successful, but they have a track record in doing this. What are the nature of sales, for example? Are they transactional sales or is it a consultative selling? Again, I've seen that time and time again, as you can imagine, over the years. One case in point comes to mind was a company I was working with and they, they were an, an IBM partner, not a big company at 11 sales reps. Essentially, as an IBM business partner, they were a box shifter very short sales cycle it was like you, you know, somebody would ask for a quote on x number of servers and they'd have a quote within a few hours and a follow-up call the next day place the purchase order next deal please but the company's strategy changed to being one of instead of being a box shifter they wanted to do have this managed services uh, operation which was a consultative sale but when we looked and, and, and did some assessments on the team, we found that vastly eight of them out of the 11 were ideally suited at all the, the competencies and attributes of a transactional seller. And out of those eight, there's only three or four, if memory serves you correctly, were actually trainable. The others, now there was a role for them, but that's something important as well that you identify what type of sale it is. Just because somebody was a stud or studess in a different environment does not mean they'll be successful for you. Are they in a demand versus fulfillment type of environment? Do customers know what they want or does that demand have to be created in some way? Are they hunting and they farming? So these are all the primary function, what we call primary function indicators. I'm going to share that. So the first thing I want to share with you are some documents around that, some templates that allow you to, as part of your process, to define what those PFIs are. And so I am going to, let me just put this up here. So this, these are, these are, this is a bank of documents and tools that I have. And this is the first one that I want to share with you. So uh, job functions, who are the people the salesperson will be calling on? How much is the technical, uh, technical knowledge, blah, blah. And you can see, see the rest. Um, so I'm going to put that in chat. Let me just make sure I have my chat function open and, uh, uh, let me just share that. So I have a few documents, as I said, I'm going to just kick over to you as I do this. So that's the first one. If you look in your chat, that link, what I'm going to suggest you do with that, obviously, we're not, we don't have time in this session to fill that in. Take it off, look through it. It's pretty self-explanatory. It's an editable PDF that I just sent you. So I'd suggest what I've sent you in chat, just right-click on it, open it up in a separate tab, because I have several more I'm gonna share with you and just open up in tabs so when we're finished, you'll be able to download them and, and, and they're yours. So that's the first thing is to kind of define those. The second thing as part of your recruitment in order identifying A players is to create a, it's like, you know in sales, marketing do this to some extent as well as where you create your ideal customer type, your, your avatar for, who the individual uh, is that you want to sell to. I think it's also true in recruitment that we identify that clearly. And the framework that I'm going to share with you is what we call in Sandra called search, S-E-A-R-C-H. And the S is skills. What skills do they need to have to be successful in this role? E is experiences. What experiences do they need to have demonstrated or have had in order to have a high likelihood of being a good fit in this role? What are the attitudes and the beliefs, the mindsets that are gonna be important? That's the A. Uh, are our results, what results will they have had to demonstrate in a prior role that are, you, you say, if you don't have, if you haven't demonstrated a track record here, 
uh, this is problematic. That's what we're looking for with R, that's the results. C, cognitive habits. Are they quick thinking on their feet? Are they analytical? And H, are they uh, habits? So cognitive skills and habits are the H. So when they go about prospecting, how do they do that? When they set up their week, how do they go about doing that? What is their routine? What are their consistent habits that make them successful? That's the search model. And so what I'm gonna do with that is I'm gonna share with you an example of it and then give you a template that you can go and create your own. So we have the, so now we're seeing here the job functions that you identify as part of your PFI there in the leftmost column, you can see that here. And then you have the skills, experiences, attitude. But if I go up here, uh, top five job requirements. Now the skill, this is the interesting bit. This is what's important. So as you identify the skills, the experiences, the attitudes, the results, the cognitive ability and the habits, what you do is you identify must haves. In other words, if they don't have this, they're automatically disqualified. And then you also identify the nice to have. So if you look at it here, I've on this page is the skills that they must have and the nice to have. And then, and we'll be talking about questions and I have a whole list of questions that you can use in interviews that I said I'd share some of Tom's favorite questions as well, is you'll then start to add some of the questions. Again, it's an editable PDF in this tool so that when I want to uncover and look for the skills, what questions am I going to ask? You can put them in here as well. So that's the next thing I'm going to share with you in chat. Uh, let me see. So the, that's the search. I've created the, oh, there was another document that was going to there. That's another document on PFIs, by the way. And then that's, that's the search tool just there now. So if you open those, um, that other document was 1.2, which I wanted to share. That's 2.5, 1.2. Here we go. This was another one around. So there was the primary function indicators. What, you know, did, was it a, what type of sales cycle was it, for example? And this is more kind of external looking as well. What's the sales cycle like, buyer networks, type of sales. So this is a, just a supporting document to go with the, so one was a primary functions, and this is a job for profiler. Those two documents go together. I've sent you both of those. And they're to be completed before you do the search. And then what I do, and there's another document I'm going to send you, which I'm not going to display, but I'm going to send to you, is a Word document that I created years ago, which had all of the uh, skills, and these are generic skills that you need to have in a sales role, experiences. So what I suggest people do is, they're, they're kind of like uh, prompters. So what type of skill, maybe if uh, prospecting is a skill that they need to have, cold calling or social media, whatever, is that you take that from the skill column and move it down to your custom column as, as you develop it for the particular role that you're recruiting for. And I'm gonna send you that as well. Uh, and that's another document I've shared with you. All right, so leave that to one side for a second. So what we've said is holding on to staff is key and to not take your eye off that ball and that the standard things we'll often do to try and retain staff, pay them more is very temporary at best. Really, if you want to hold on to people, make them feel special about being part of your organization. Make them feel special about being on that journey with you. What story are they part of? And then as we get into the recruitment and we're looking at who do we want to attract, we need to be crystal clear on what type of individual. And that is that journey is started by looking at, well, what are the primary function functions of the job? The PFIs, we call them. And then once you've defined that is now we need to to create the search model, which is looking at the attributes, the skills, the experiences, the attitudes, etc, that you need to have in order to fulfill those functions. That's the search model. And then the last one, which I'm only going to share with you, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on here is the team matrix. If you if there, somebody's coming into a team environment, how they operate within that team and how they work with that team is going to not just affect them but also can have a knock-on effect we've all had seen those situations where there's a bad apple in a team somebody who's just underperforming and the way they get to feel 
okay about that is when everybody else underperforms as well, then they're not the tall pole. So we want to make sure that whoever's coming in is going to fit in with the existing team. And so there's another tool I'm going to share with you is just, again, as you go through that process, helps you think about, well, what type of individual would work well with the team around them. And that is, I am going to, again, in chat, I am going to send that to you as well. That's the team matrix tool. So there's a few tools to take offline and to integrate them. You can edit them as they are, or you can take stuff for them and create your own, knock yourself out. Um, that's that identifying and knowing who it is you want is key part of this and not get, because, because, and this is what we're going to look at now when we're going to talk about the hiring is that when we don't have that objective criteria well-defined, then often we allow our gut to get in the way. And that's a mistake. I have a quote here from um, Steve Jobs and Apple. And this to me speaks to the whole idea of the, the defining the team metrics. And here's the quote. He says, my model for business is the Beatles. There were four guys that kept each other's negative tendencies in check. They balanced each other and the total was greater than the sum of the parts. And I just think that's a wonderfully simple way of looking at the importance of the team when they're working together and supporting each other, coaching each other, holding each other accountable. When they work as a team, it's magic. When they're working as individuals, you just will never, same as any kind of a team, you, they, you will never, you will never struggle to beat any team that works well together. So that's what I wanted to say about recruitment. I want to make sure we're staying on time. Okay, next we'll move on. Talk about hiring. Sell soft, qualify hard. What do I mean by that? Well, we're recruiting, we're, we're marketing to this, this, this pool of talent. Now we move into hiring. That's, we want to think of that as more of qualifying. How do we make sure there's a good fit here? And we are still selling to them at this stage as well. We want them to be part of our story. But now we're selling soft and qualifying hard. And I'm going to share with you a generic process very quickly. And then I'm going to let you listen to Tom Castley talk about his process, which is customized to their organization in outreach. And Tom, for those of you who don't know, is the GM EMEA for outreach and is just just as a thought leader in sales is just one of, one of my favorite individuals. So what I always suggest the starting point when you look at hiring and hiring as a process, you start with five distinct stages and, and they can be five different interviews. But what you do is you're separating, you're saying, okay, the first interaction, is it going to be an in-depth interview? I would suggest not. I would always keep that first interview interaction with a prospective candidate as a short call 15 minutes is either a phone call or a zoom call and you're really looking at things like do they show up on time how do they sound on the phone if they're going to be on the phone to prospects how do they sound to you are they concise are they clear because if none of those things stack up what's the point in spending any more time interviewing them are they on time if it's on zoom how are they set up in terms of the the camera and you know, is a camera on, for example, is their background clear? All of those kind of simple little things that are clues to how they'll perform. You figure that out in 10, 15 minutes. Any more time than that is not necessary. I would then have a second stage, which is more around job fit. That's where you get to ask a lot of questions. That's where you'll take in that search model and look for evidence of the skills, the experiences, the attitudes and so on that they have. And you'll see in that tool, there's a place for adding all of those questions, and I'm going to share more with you uh, shortly. The third element I would always have in there, and some people don't like this. I love it. It's called a negative interview. And, and I think sometimes people are just, they don't like the term negative interview. But really what it is, is that very often we'll meet somebody, we like them. And from that point on, what we're trying to do is our bias is looking for evidence that we're right, that they're a good fit. And we don't look, we don't lift up the rock and look underneath and see is there moss underneath. And so a negative interview could start something like this. The candidate shows up either remote on Zoom or, or, or 
in, you know, in, in the room. And after you welcome them, your first thing is to say is something like, over to you. That's it. Just hand them control of the meeting. See what do they do? Are they prepared? Did they come just to answer a ton of questions or do they have questions? Can they deal with being thrown a curveball, for example? If they can't do that with you, they're not going to do it when they're in front of a prospect. That's what I mean by negative. Another example of a negative interview would be, um, for example, with a candidate. And what I would say to you is, the more you think they're a good fit, the more you need to do this. At some stage, you turn to them and you say, I don't think you're right for this job. Then you shut up. You don't say a word. You see how they deal with it. What you're doing is you're rejecting them. And you want to see how do they handle rejection? Do they do it without getting upset? Does, does it throw them off base? Because again, if they can't handle it with you, don't expect them to handle it with a prospect. So you gotta, you gotta inspect what you expect. And it's funny. I remember working with a guy or a company, it was the MD of a company, and he paid me to come in and ask that one question because he was uncomfortable asking it. Right? So, and, and so that, that tells me then, well, if he's like that, how many other people are like that that would shy away from? So I'm not saying be an asshole. That's not what a negative interview is like. It's really shaking the post, shaking the fence, underneath and see how they perform uh, doing a role play with them don't accept when you say when you when you set up a role play of how they might open a call with a prospect or how they might uh, close it whatever the context is or make a prospecting call because I've done this many many times and they'll say oh I, I, this is what I would say don't accept that make them say it role play it okay I am the CIO, you're calling on me, and you can, you can say to them, sell me, in fact, you prepare them for this before they come, you're going to come, we're going to do a 10 minute role play, you're going to sell me your existing product. See, do they understand what are the pains, issues, challenges that their existing solution addresses, if they don't know that. And then you can say, well, for CIO or CFO, what would be the pains? If they can't tell you what that is for their existing one where they're already working, how can they possibly do it for you? They don't get it. So that's what I mean by negative interview is, I remember again with another company I did that with and the MD of the company turned to me and he said, Paul, he says, I'm so glad we did this. I had to persuade him to do this. He said, we were gonna hire him. He said, we really liked him. And the guy just fell apart. I know what it was, he swore, that was it. He, he dropped an F-bomb in an interview. I turned to him and I said, you don't know me. You don't know that I'm not offended by that. You think it's cool to do that? And he just just fell apart. Well, and the fact that he actually would drop an F-bomb in the middle of an interview when he's looking for a job. You see, the problem is he had a really good, he felt a really good rapport with the MD. And it was the MD he was speaking to. But didn't realize that you got to earn the right to use that kind of language with somebody. Um, so I'm looking at Philip here, he just popped in this guy. I would call it a reverse interview. Doesn't sound so, yeah, okay, I'm cool with that, Philip, absolutely. Uh, you, you, you gotta inspect what you expect. I probably should change the term. Uh, but, but you get the point at this stage. It's vitally important that you do it. Rather find out now than find out later. Next one, team fit. I'm just conscious of time because I wanna play this Tom uh, thing for you as well. Team fit, how will they fit in with the team? We talked about the team metrics. Maybe get some of their team members as well, the ones they're gonna be working with to interview them as a separate interview. What's the cultural fit, etc. All right, so I'm going to play the, um, uh, so this is, so that's, let me just uh, put that up there. So that's the uh, connection. I know what it is. <laughs> to your point, Philip, I did change this and I just forgot to ch change my notes. Um, you see it on the slide there, I had connection. That's the first short call. Can they make it, are they quick at building rapport with somebody? Job fit was, an, was the second interview. And third one is uncover blind spots. That's what I changed it to because I know the negative word can be, can have negative connotations, but that's what we're doing, uncovering blind spots. All right, I'm gonna play this for you. It's about eight minutes, but it's where Tom is talking about his, this is real world application of this generic process I'm talking about. So I'm gonna play that one. Cheers, Philip. All right, here process we go. pretty simple. So um, if it's an inbound, uh, we'll do some form of a review of the application. We're looking for you know, little things like location, 
might be uh, particular skills if we are adamant that they have some of those capabilities. Um, you know, is their application well written? Is it, you know, does it have any spelling mistakes in it? Do they have a covering letter is ideal. Uh, and then there's some other ones which are nice to have, you know, have they sold SaaS software before? Um, yeah. But just because they've sold SaaS software doesn't mean to say that uh, they're good at it. <laughs> um, so that's the first stage. And then the, the counter to that and the passive market is obviously where we're kind of pre-researching that before we reach out to somebody. Uh, the second step in the process uh, is we do have a very short call and that is some, that is the purpose of that call uh, is one is just to build some rapport, uh, but ultimately to get them excited about the opportunity because we're about to ask them to invest a considerable amount of time working out whether we're a good fit for each other. Mm. And in my experience, people will lean into that more if they're excited about the potential. Otherwise, they can fall over in the first stages because they're trying to work out, is this a good thing? And they, they don't turn up with their A game. They don't turn up, uh, you know, wanting it to be a success from the beginning. Uh, that's a recent change we've made and it's had a profound impact. The, the stage up. Yeah. I was going to ask you, sorry, Tom, before you move on from that, what I'm hearing is that, and that first one is like, it's almost like you're marketing to them, you're, or priming is a better word, right? Priming them. Yeah. How much of that, though, is also where you're paying attention to how do they sound on a phone call? How confident do they sound? How much are they in control of that process? How much of that qualification from your side is going on? Yeah, so there is, um, I mean, when we were face-to-face, -face, there, was, there was more stuff you could do. But even over, over Zoom, for example, you know, uh, what time did they arrive? Um, did they? Uh, mute, uh, you know, the, the, their etiquette on, on Zoom. Were they muting or unmuting? Was the video on or off? Uh, did they have, um, uh, are they writing stuff down? Uh, did they set up their background? Were they deliberate about their environment or are they, you know, so there's lots of things you can do just to kind of assess how they, how they turn up in general. A bit like um, when I was at Oracle, we used to have um, uh, somebody else bring a candidate up and we always used to make sure the interview room was a long way away from reception and uh, they would put them in the room and then they would come and speak to us for a few minutes and the first thing we were asking them is you know what was the walk like were they asking lots of questions were they were they qualifying the audience were they were they engaging with you were they talking to you as important as well and what have you so yeah even Every stage are on show, aren't they? You know. mm -hmm. um, the second thing we do is we, we normally try and construct some form of uncomfortable moment in those 30 minutes, to, again, to test, um, you know, maybe we'll go off mute or um, uh, uh, one of the ones I've, done, I've given away a secret here is say, look, I just need to go and grab a, a glass of water, turn my video off and I stay in the seat. And I'm just watching to see what they do for the next five minutes. And then I come back and turn around and put off the water. You know, and I've had somebody, uh, you know, like, you know, I, uh, you know, just like disappear, do something else. I've had others making notes. They're talking to themselves, and um, I've I've heard from others who I gave this tip to. That, you know, they're like, can't believe I'm doing this. It's like, right, okay, well, that's that's good to know. Yeah. So then, then we do then we do the quiz next, and uh, you know, it's forty five minutes of their time. Uh, is really important to us. We can uh, we can start to say one of the two of the three of the biggest things I look for in there is one is uh, it helps to tell us do they take responsibility, and that's really critical in sales. Um, let me give you an example: somebody who doesn't take responsibility when they lose a deal, the kind of things you'll hear them say is, "Well, uh, our price was too high. The competitor got in there early." Uh, they never engaged with us. Uh, we didn't have this particular feature or function. They wanted something else. And, and to my mind, there's two reasons why you lose a deal. Uh, one is you shouldn't have been in there in the first place, uh, or you were outsold. Yep. Uh, and that's it. Uh, everything boils down to that. And so if somebody takes responsibility, they can learn. That's critical. The, the second part of it is, are they made for sales? So. What I mean by that is more about their DNA. 
So are they comfortable talking about money? Uh, can they control their emotions? Do they need approval? Now, I've seen some great salespeople who don't score well in those three areas, but they are the kind of people that on the weekend, they really need to you know, take time out because it just takes it out of them. People that have that natural kind of DNA, they, it, it doesn't wear them down. And, um, and, and ultimately, it's, something, it's like doing a sport you don't enjoy. Guess what? You rather play sports you enjoy and you tend to thrive at rather than forcing somebody to go and do something. They'll never uh, ultimately in their core enjoy it. So the test is the, uh, is the next stage. After that, we then get into the formal bit. So we have the skills interview, uh, which for us is um, yeah, hour and a half, I guess, uh, mm. to get through. And that is uh, normally done with two people and the hiring manager and another. Okay. And uh, both people, what's critical here is um, now we also, because most of it's done over Zoom, we'll, we'll invite Outreach Kaya, which allows us to record and transcribe the call. Uh, but also we'll make copious notes. And the notes yeah. we make are phonetical. We don't write our opinion. We type what they say. And naturally, if you're looking at five or six candidates, if, if you just wrote down, I really like their answer, they lent in, how can I compare that objectively next time? Yes. I need to write down what they say, and then we go and score them later and compare and contrast. Mm. Yeah. Mm. We also have the same questions that we have a set of, uh, for each skill and attribute, we have about seven questions. Mm -hmm. And if you have to ask all seven, you're really struggling to find that skill or attribute. You know, somebody, oftentimes, somebody, we can move to the next section after two questions because yes. they've really displayed what we're looking for. So it allows us to kind of, you know, keep drilling in just in case they messed up their response. We can ask it from different angles, different places. Yes. Again, really, like you were doing good discovery to really work out, you know, do they have that capability or that skill or is there a, a gap or something? And having completed that, then the final stage is the culture interview, uh, which is two people again, uh, but two different people. And the culture interview is consistent across, across the company. So any of the hiring managers here uh, have done that interview hundreds of times. Uh, and we come together probably every couple of months uh, and relook at the questions and make sure that they're still appropriate. Are we asking mm. them in the same way? Uh, looking at how people are responding to those questions uh, and making sure that we're all eliciting the, the right kind of stuff from it. Okay, folks, I hope you enjoyed that. As I said, Tom is just a wonderful practitioner and I think his advice on, on as a practitioner is immense. And you'll see again, he's very clear that we have a very, uh, very specific, focused, intentional, different stages. And the key thing on this is that you have a blind spot. If you can't define how many stages in your hiring process you have a blind spot or if for example in the organization if you ask well what are the stages and what's the purpose of each stage if they're not all the same as an organization you've got a blind spot you can see tom how clear he is on this is what we do then we do this then we do this and everybody's done this and everybody knows what to do that's when you know you've got and and tom is he just i because I, I know some of the people he hires and they are just they're they're incredible so yeah thanks for that guys the thumbs up just to let me know because as i said uh i i haven't included practitioners before and i just think that's really important what i want to do now is i want to move on to so that's process we're done um i want to talk about some of the questions that you can use to uncover the skills the experiences the attributes the cognitive abilities the habits etc of reps um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start that by sharing with you another uh, short two-minute interview with Tom where he shares his two favorite questions that he asks and why he asks them. and that's what I want you to pay attention to it's not the, que the questions when you hear them the first time are kind of going oh it's a pretty innocuous question but actually when you when you hear why he does that's important then what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to share with the group online at the moment your favorite interview question. So what I want people to come away from this are, are just, because we all have our own favorite go-to questions. 
But then when you hear somebody else, you go, oh, that's great, I'm gonna use that. That's what I want you to do. So once I've shared the Tom, I want you to then be thinking about your favorite question, put that into chat so other people can see it and we'll share it. So uh, let me get the Tom, the next one up from Tom lined up for you. Here's his two favorite questions. I can't let you leave this section without asking you because you mentioned that you like to ask other people what's their favorite questions and you said you geek out on that. What are your top two questions that you like, that you absolutely would ask every time? So the first question we ask in interview, which tells me a lot of things is, uh, tell me uh, a little bit about your career uh, and your background and, and you know, take two or three minutes to describe that to me. Mm. And in a sales role, it, you find out a number of things. Can they be concise? Do they have brevity? Do they answer the question? Do they stick to the time frame of two or three minutes? So the question actually tests multiple different facets of skills and capability. Yeah. Uh, my favorite, favorite one, which I stole from Richard Mullander, is the ex-chief hostage negotiator of the UK. So I think hostage negotiators are great at asking questions, funny enough, is uh, who is the best boss you've ever worked for and why did you like them so much? And what that tells you is uh, immediately they'll start to describe the attributes of the leader and in the environment that made them excel. Because guess what, they like, they like the people they worked for that, that made them the best version of themselves. And immediately you start to get a sense for, okay, um, you know, if the answer to that question was, well, I really like this person, they, they gave me loads of training, whenever I went to them, they just gave me the answer I needed, uh, they were always there for me, they came on all of my calls, I'm like, right, red flag, <laughs> this is somebody that is basically an administrator of sales and brings their super salesperson with them. If it's somebody where they say, look, I love this person, they constantly challenged me, uh, they, they broadened my thinking, um, uh, they, they, they understood how I ticked and they motivated in me in innovative ways. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and realized that, you know, I had a family at home and I, you know, wasn't going to work 15 hours a day, but they absolutely gave me the environment in which to excel. I'm like, right, now I kind of get how this person ticks. Okay, I hope you enjoyed those two, two great questions. And again, please keep sharing your own favorite questions. Thanks, Matthew, for sharing yours. I love that one. Have you ever asked a prospect who didn't buy from you to explain why they lost the deal? What did they say? And what did you learn from that experience? And Francesca, you're straight to the point. Why you? <laughs> I like that one too. All right, good, but please don't keep those coming in. I'm gonna share with you some more tools, documents right now. So if I go back here, what is the last skill you thought yourself, you taught yourself and why? I love that one. Um, here's here's a, a, a download on the hiring process. <clears throat> to a question I had earlier, yes, you will get a recording of this. We'll put it into our newsletter and we'll send that out to you. However, if you just want that Tom bit on the hiring process, there it is in chat right now. And if you want those two favorite questions from Tom, there's a link to them, to those, just the little snippets that I inserted in that. And last but not least on this section, here is a document with a ton of questions that are categorized when you want to uncover skill, uh, skills, experiences, etc. So you can download that there. It's a Word document. You can add to it yourself, add your own favorite questions and update it as you go. So if you want to put uh, download those or just as I said, just right click and open them as separate tabs. So last section very quickly I want to do is onboarding. And the goal of onboarding as I, as I would define it is to accelerate time to revenue instill consistency and also filter out so if you recruit well and you have a really good icp and you hire well you really shouldn't get any you might get a few b candidates in but we want to eliminate any c candidates your onboarding process should pick them up so what i'm going to do with is i'm going to share an example i'll talk about it first very briefly then share an example and then send you a, a, a template that you can use to develop your own. So I came across this first in Sander where Sander themselves wanting to onboard new franchisees like me into the, in the business had a 90 day plan. 
And basically what you're doing with that, you're saying, okay, over the next 90 days, there's going to be certain deliverables. You break that into 13 weeks. And each week, what you do is you look at things like the coaches, the managers, typically their actions, the kind of things that they have to do in that week for a new hire. But then when you look at the rep, what are their uh, business company product related actions? In other words, what do they have to learn about the product, the solution, how the organization works? Who's who? Um, what are their selling activities? For example, in the first week, maybe they have to contact X number of customers, right? Maybe that's a week two or week three. But you define their selling activities for that their very first week. You also define their administrative. Maybe they need to get set up on internal systems. So you define those for them. And then any other training, uh, for example, first week, they might have to learn off the uh, elevator pitch for their particular area or learn off what, are, what is the uh, value proposition for the organization. And when I say learn it off, that they're able to, and this is the last bit of the, it's the deliverables at the end of the week, on the Friday, that they come to you via Zoom or in person, and that they're able to do a stand and deliver, and that they're able to do without looking at notes, and they know it like it's two plus two, they're able to deliver their elevator pitch or value proposition and they don't have to think about it. Now, the key thing in this is you have to inspect what you expect. If you expect them to be able to do that, your role is to make sure that you hold them accountable for showing up on the Friday to do that. However, everything is defined for them. And this is where you get to weed out. If somebody's showing up at the end of their first week and they're not able to, A, they don't have the competencies or they just haven't bothered their arse to do it, that tells you very, very quickly, that's a red, a yellow card anyway, week two would be a red card for me. And so I'm going to share with you an example of what that looks like. And then, as I said, there's a template. So let me uh, put that into chat for you. You can open this up. So here's an onboarding example. If you open that up, you'll see what that looks like. And again, I sent this as a Word document so you can I think it's Word. If it's not, it doesn't matter. You, you, you. You're going to create your own anyway, because this is one that I did for a client. Um, I have one of these for Sander, which is 13 weeks, end of week one, end of week two, end of week three. The purpose of this is that you define what they need to be able to do early on and hold them accountable to doing it. But you get that consistency as well. So you know the ramp up time is 90 days and everybody, say in week eight, should be at the exact same point to ensure that you got to hold them accountable to it. And if they're not doing it, they're gone. That would be as simple as that, because if they're not doing it now, when it's clear to them what they have to do is they're not going to do it later on. They're not going to do it in six months time. It's just not going to happen. And you're storing up a ton of heartache. So take a look at that document as an example of what I'm going to do now with you is share with you is a a template document which you can use to define your own onboarding plan. And maybe this is something that you want to get your existing team together around the table uh, on a call with to define because um, when somebody new comes into the team, it's important that the team is also holding them accountable, but also there to support them. And in order to do that, they need to know, but also have bought into the onboarding plan. And it's a lot easier for them to buy into the onboarding plan if they've helped define it. And they can help you kind of decide whether a particular goal or objective you were saying week three is really realistic. A rep who's been through the process themselves, even if you didn't have the plan in place, they've, they've been on board and they said, look, that's unrealistic. I probably spent the first three weeks doing A, B and C. It's unrealistic to expect me to do X, Y and Z for example. So I would involve them in doing that. Uh, that's pretty much it. I think we are just, let me just, in terms of onboarding, oh, my watch has just died. Uh, yeah, we're, we are over time on that. Um, that is, I think the last thing I wanted to share with you onboarding was to kind of give, give you those tools and templates. And I have a last thing I'm going to share with you on this one. It's just a hiring checklist. Again, I send this to you. I'm not going to go through this because I am over time. But it's a, it's, a, it's a useful checklist to kind of go through uh, do's and don'ts, what you should do in order to make this really a robust, scalable 
system that delivers consistent results. That's just one page, and then there's another page, and I'm just leaving that up there, so um, it's 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 there for posterity. You will get this. Uh, yeah, that's it, folks. So if you have any questions you want to get me, I'm going to stay on for a couple of minutes. But if not, thanks for joining me, and uh, I hope to see you on another one of these.